My name is Ross Anderson. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Alpine Church. And I don't know if you're aware of this or if you've noticed this at all in society, but a lot of people don't like Christians. Have you noticed that? I I saw a survey taken about a year ago um, that said that 25% of Americans have a negative or highly negative view of Christians. And you know, based on what you see in the media and around, you know, you think it might be higher than that, but that's still a pretty significant chunk of people. But what I was interested in looking at that survey was the reasons why people expressed that they really don't like Christianity or what, Christian, what Christianity represents. And I, so the reasons for that negative view I thought were so interesting. Number one, the biggest group, 67% of that group said, they don't like uh, Christianity because they feel like Christians are we're too pushy with our beliefs. Okay, well, we'll explore that a little bit in a minute. 61% said that we're hypocritical. Okay, well, uh, 50% uh, claim that we are homophobic. 50% that our beliefs are outdated. 41% that we're too conservative politically. don't like Christians because in America because they feel like Christians are racist, and 30% feel like Christians are misogynistic, that that they don't really, that they're against women. And you know, maybe if you're a guest here today, um, maybe you have some of those criticisms about Christianity in America. You know what? I do too. I I don't like to see any time a so-called Christian is judgmental. Hateful, hypocritical, intolerant, bigoted. I hate to see that. It bothers me. Now, how does this relate to our series on grace? Let me connect the dots, okay? Because as Christians, we talk about grace a lot. We sing songs about grace. We're saved by grace. We're sustained by grace. We've been learning this whole month about how grace works in our lives and in our relationships with each other and and what it means to live in grace And today, what I want you to see biblically as we explore grace in Scripture, that we are actually supposed to extend God's grace to people outside the walls of the church as well. Now, maybe you understand that already, and yet you look at our society today, I don't believe that Christians typically are known for grace. Do you think that that that's the case, that, that our reputation in American society today is the first thing people think of when they think of Christians is grace? Maybe not. Well, here's our definition of grace. Let me reset that uh, for you this week. Grace is the quality of God's character by which he helps us and blesses us with good gifts without requiring anything in return. That's the grace of God toward us, that he doesn't treat us based on our merit or our worthiness or our loveliness or our goodness, but God acts toward us simply based on his character, his grace for us. And so... What I want to look at today, explore with you, is let's see how that grace translates into our relationships with people who don't know God and how God might want us to show His grace to people around us, even people who don't agree with us, even people who don't like us, and even people whose values and and views we could not endorse. Two things. The first thing is how we talk. What comes out of our mouth? I want to encourage you, the Bible tells us to speak with grace toward those who don't know God. So a lot of the the criticisms that are leveled at Christians in, in our generation today have to do with our words. Now, God has given us a message for our society, the message of Jesus, of his 
death and resurrection on our behalf, to, to heal our sin and to reconcile us with our Creator. But God also cares about how we communicate our message as well as what the message is. So we see that in two verses, two passages. The first is Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. The Apostle Paul says, Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. So you see the setting here. He's talking about what is our relationship like to people who don't profess Christ? How are we supposed to interact with those people? The core idea in these verses is that we live wisely, to be wise about that. Now, what that means is that there's a wise way to relate to non-Christians, and by contrast, there's probably also a ton of foolish ways to relate to people, and some of us, you know, have written a book on that over the years, right? But he says there's some wise ways to interact with people around us in our culture, in our society. What are those? What makes our interactions wise? He identifies three things there. Number one, he says, make the most of every opportunity. Now think about that for a minute. An opportunity is something that comes to you, isn't it? It's kind of by definition. Opportunity can be big, it can be small. In, in terms of our relationships with people outside of Christ, that opportunity could be to speak something to share something about our life, about our experience with Christ, about the gospel. The opportunity could be um, just simply to be kind to them and to act graciously or to help them in some way. The opportunity could be huge and you could spend hours talking to a friend. The opportunity could be tiny where you have just a minute to share something or to do something. He says, whatever that opportunity God gives you, make the most of it. That means you don't try to drive a truck through this one, you know, and you don't walk away from this one. And that's part of what it means to be wise in our interactions with people is to recognize the opportunities as they arise and to, to discern how to take advantage of that, understanding always that it's the Holy Spirit who brings the results. Well, the second thing he says is that our conversation should be gracious. That's the word that we've been talking about this whole month. And we saw it at the very beginning, a fundamental definition of grace is God helps. And so gracious words are words that help. Words that benefit other people, words that are kind and, and uplifting to other people. And that's how we should relate to people around us who don't know Christ. He says, sec, the third thing is let your conversation be attractive. The word there behind that is, is really it literally seasoned with salt. And salt has the function, right, of making something bland taste better. You put seasoning in something and it, and it tastes better. It's more savory, it's more attractive and more desirable. He says that they're, they're, by analogy that our words can be seasoned in a sense in a way that they're more attractive and more desirable to people around us. And he says when you do that, then you have the right response for everybody. He says you're going to know how to respond to the different kind of people, the different situations in your life. So let me ask you this. In our society today, do you think that Christians are known for being gracious in our public rhetoric? When non-Christians hear our public voice, whether it's in media or news or it's on, on Facebook or in our conversations with our family and friends and so forth, do they find it attractive? Of course, you know, not everybody's going to respond to the message of, of Christ, even if we make it as winsome and we communicate it as graciously and attractively as possible, not everybody's going to respond positively, and, that, and that's on them. 
But what's on us is to make sure that our approach is wise, that our conversations are not ungracious and not unattractive. So think about how you speak about your faith and about your relationship with Jesus in your life. What do you sound like at your family gatherings? What do you sound like in your conversations with your friends? What does your Facebook feed look like as you represent Christ out there? So he says that that's where we want to start. I want you to be wise. Now, another verse that helps us understand the implications of this in practice is 1 Peter chapter 3. So we have the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter giving us basically the same uh, kind of message. And Peter says, if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it, but do this in a gentle and respectful way. He says, you know, you're going through stuff in your life. Everybody goes through difficult things in life, and you get crushed sometimes. And, and say, but how do you as a Christian respond to that? We have reason for hope, and sometimes people can see that hope. And it creates curiosity, and they're intrigued by, well, what, what is it about you that, what it, that gives you the, the strength to go through that, the hope to go to face those kind of things? And he says, when people ask us about our hope, then respond to them with gentleness and respect. Now, again, where do we get the idea then that the people get the idea that Christians are too pushy about our beliefs? A couple of things about that come to mind as I think about that. Number one is, this is, let me just say this, um, this is one of my biggest concerns about the politicization of, of Christianity in our country, whether it's right or left, I don't care which aisle you're talking about, but when people rise to political power, they do so on the basis of stirring up people's fear, fear of whatever boogeyman there is out there. Christians should not be characterized by fear, we should be characterized by hope. We should not be afraid of the future. We should not be afraid of where society is going. We should, be, we should have hope that God is in control, that hope that the Holy Spirit can, can change things, hope that we can be the right kind of people no matter what society is like around us. And so I think when we fall into some of the political patterns that people are selling, then we, stop to, we start to lose hope and begin to be driven by fear. But I think one of the reasons why sometimes people think we're too pushy about our beliefs is that they only hear our message being something else other than the gospel. They're not hearing us share the hope that we have. They're not hearing us share about Jesus and his death on the cross for us and God's love for us. But when they hear us being pushy about our beliefs, maybe they're hearing us being pushy about morality and lifestyle and even about politics. And so they can't hear us expressing our hope because of all the other things that we're emphasizing so much while identifying as Christians. And maybe another reason that, that people feel like Christians are too busy, uh, too pushy about their beliefs is that when we do have faith conversations with others and we do have opportunity to share what we believe, a lot of times we're just not gentle and respectful about that. And so if we're living out 1 Peter chapter 3, then, then we're not slamming other people's beliefs, we're not ridiculing what other people hold dear, we're not engaging in shouting matches, we're not actually talking before we listen to other people and to understand where they're coming from. And so when we talk about our hope in Jesus, we're really not trying to win arguments, we're trying to win people. And how do you win people to a message at the core of our message is God's grace? How do you win people to that message when you use methods that are anti-grace? And so because that's the result. 
when, when we're not gentle and respectful, people's hearts become closed to our message. Our words begin to lose credibility. People stop feeling like we actually care about them as human beings. And, and the good news that we share doesn't sound like good news to them. So maybe more Christians would be comfortable with sharing our hope, the hope that we have, if we realize that it's not about being pushy and it's not about winning an argument or having a shouting match with someone. It's about sharing our hope and what we've experienced in Christ. So part of how we're called to show grace to the world around us is how we speak. But let's look at one other way, and it's, how, it's actually how we act. It's how we treat people. We want to treat people with grace even if they don't follow God. Now think about this for a second. When somebody's mean to you, what's your natural response? Like you see it in our kids, right? Because they're, they're a little less guarded than we are. They, they want to hit back. Right? They want to strike, strike back. They get an insult, they want to insult back. When somebody's mean to us, how do we respond? Well, we get defensive, right? We, we want to respond in kind so often. And that's true when Christians often in our culture today, we might feel threatened. We might feel threatened by people who attack our values and our beliefs. And so maybe we feel like that impulse to strike back. But you know what? Let, let's look at the, 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 really the street goes both ways. Think about how people will react when they feel threatened by Christians who attack their lifestyle and their values. How do you expect them to react? And Jesus calls us to a different response, to a different path. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said some really radical things in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is one of them. This is one of the things that is so countercultural for us as Christians to hear. And here it is. Jesus says, I say, love your enemies... And right there, I'm just broken. I'm going like, oh my gosh, you know. What? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. So Jesus is reminding us here how gracious God is toward people. That God pours out unconditional blessing and favor on humanity as a whole. He gives sunlight and rain and sustenance and food to the the whole human race. Whether they deserve it from him or not. This is called common grace. Because it's an expression of God's grace and goodness that's common or that's shared by all human beings. So common grace... Even those who refuse God, even those who don't want to follow his ways, even those who serve false gods, God still blesses them with rain and sunshine, food and all the rest. Now Jesus has a reason for highlighting common grace here, highlighting the character of God here. Do you know what it is? You can tell, right? Because he wants his followers to adopt the same attitude. He says, I want you to be true children of your heavenly father i want you to reflect his heart and his character i want you there to be a family resemblance between you and your heavenly father and he says if we adopt then god's attitude toward people who oppose us and who don't like us and maybe even who persecute us he says when we treat people that way then we're proving that we are genuine authentic bona fide children of the living god And I think this goes back to a fundamental issue. I think in our society, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to work some of this out in a society that's so contentious and there's so many voices and, and, and 
Christianity isn't prominent the way it used to be, and we're trying to figure out how to adapt to a new cultural role as Christians in America and around the world. And I, so I think that sometimes we get confused about this one thing that, that um, if we can get over this confusion, it might really help us to be more gracious. I think as Christians, sometimes we get confused about our role in interacting with non-Christians because we think that our responsibility is to correct people's lifestyle. And the reason I, I look around and I see a lot of people putting a lot of energy into that and calling out other people's sin and lifestyle choices in the culture at large and ranting about what's right and wrong, but I would suggest that God never commissioned us as his people to change people's behavior. That I don't think that God expects people who don't know Christ to live like people who do. Without the Holy Spirit in them, without being transformed within so that's not our job. I think our job, biblically, is to go make disciples, to help people pursue God, to invite people into a transforming relationship with Jesus out from which their lives will then change as they're changed from within by the transforming work of the Spirit. Then their behavior begins to change, and it's not just skin deep. But I think in our culture, many Christians have switched agendas from sharing the good news to fighting about how people ought to live. And I believe it's when we make it our task to call out people's lifestyle choices and to try to correct them. That's usually when we come across as harsh and judgmental and unloving. And that's why people think Christians are hateful and intolerant. Because all they can hear us saying, now I don't think we're saying this necessarily, but this is I think what people hear us saying. They hear us saying that we are holy and righteous and you're bad. And we're going to make you live the way we live. And God loves us and hates you. And we're way up here and you're way down there. See, that's where we need to understand the Holy Spirit's job versus our job. The Bible says it's the Holy Spirit's job to correct people's lifestyle. John chapter 16, verse 8. Jesus is talking about he's going to leave and he's going to send the Holy Spirit to take his place. And he says when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. He says the Holy Spirit's job is to convince people that their actions are wrong. It's the Holy Spirit's job to open their eyes to how holy and righteous God is. It's the Spirit's job to awaken their conscience to the coming judgment. Nobody's going to ever really change their behavior in any real way without the Holy Spirit at work within. Even the Apostle Paul, who was, after all, an apostle, he didn't even go there. 1 Corinthians 5, he says, It's not my responsibility to judge outsiders. But it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. And God will judge those on the outside. Paul says, Look, as a church, we need to look in the mirror. As a church, we need to clean up our own house and be willing to call out when our own people are not following God. And that those are the behaviors that we're called to pay attention to when it's within ourselves. But he said it's not our duty to clean up non-Christians around us. He said that's a judgment that we leave to God. And there is a judgment coming, but it's God's responsibility, not ours. Our job is to live in a way that points people to Christ. And we talked about how sometimes we have the opportunity to share the hope that we have, to do that in words, words that are gracious and attractive, and to share Christ, that, that good message. But also, 
how, how we live our lives can point people to God. So Jesus says again in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, he says, let your good deeds shine for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So Jesus says that our good deeds reflect well on God. They point people toward God. Now what kind of good deeds does he mean? Because I think we need clarity here. I don't think he's talking about just religious good deeds. I don't think he's talking about you're going to church and you're, you're praying or going to your small group or giving money to, finan- uh, to religious causes. I don't think he's saying that anybody's going to be impressed with God because you went to church. But as I've seen this play out over the years, Matthew 5.16 expressed over and over what I really see, it, where, where I see it happening is when God's people act with practical compassion in ways that serve the community where we live. See, we have to put it out there where people can actually see it and benefit from it for them to, to feel like that it has anything to do with God. And then people can become impressed with God. So I, I remember before I got married uh, to Sally, I was single for a couple years. And this was before Alpine Church had our, our ESL program that Pastor G told you about a minute ago. Um, we didn't have English as a second language, so I felt like I, I wanted to go get involved at an ESL program at the local library. And the teacher that I was, un, that I was assisting, she was not a Christian. And um, so we'd talk every Saturday, the program, Saturday morning, so we would talk. And she noticed... What Alpine Church does at Missions Week every week, every year. She noticed how we feed all these children around the world. And you know what? She was impressed with God. That got her attention. She was impressed with God. And in fact, in Logan, when we did Feed My Starving Children just last month, three quarters of the people who attended don't go to Alpine Church. They're not necessarily Christians at all, but the community sat up and took notice and wanted to get involved, and that increased God's fame in Cache Valley. In fact, Melanie Kreps, who leads our outreach ministry, our ESL and our uh, mobile pantry, uh, she was sharing recently with us about how one woman who's not a Christian who observed what we're doing through the mobile pantry, she was so impressed. She said, hey, can I get involved in that? See, God got her attention through acts of compassion in the community. And see, that's why, that's why you, know, you heard a few minutes ago an opportunity, an appeal for you to go get involved in the ESL program and to, to go online and fill out that form and, and become involved in that as it grows because... The Holy Spirit uses our humble, practical service in the community to help people get notice of God. You can call it practical grace if you want to. When we serve people, whether they deserve it or not, just like in Matthew 5, God serves people with sunshine and rain. It's good to them whether they deserve it or not. So when we get our role and the Holy Spirit's role straight, when we realize that our job is not to convert people to certain lifestyle values, but it's to convert them to the grace of God, to share with them the good things that God does for them. When we get that, that realization then frees us up to model God's grace in our relationships, to treat people with kindness, to extend to them unconditional acceptance. Now maybe they have some habits Or some vices that you're not comfortable with. Maybe their language isn't pure and their jokes aren't clean. Maybe they're living with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. Maybe they have political views that you find absolutely unfathomable. 
Maybe they have a different sexual orientation or gender identity. Grace means we still treat that person with kindness. We still serve them. We still bless them. Now they can know. We can tell them where we stand and what we believe about that. But we're still willing to welcome that person into a relationship. We're not going to avoid them in a neighborhood. We're still going to love them and be kind to them as human persons, even if we don't agree with their lifestyle choices. In other words, what will our behavior to them show them about God? Now, I know it's a lot easier and a lot less messy for Christians to just draw a big line, create a big wall, right? But that's not what we see when we look at Jesus. And I want to show you an illustration from the life of Jesus that exemplifies, I think, what I'm trying to share with you today. In Matthew chapter 9, it says, Matthew, now Matthew had just come to faith and he had just encountered Jesus. He was a tax collector, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Now look at the people Jesus was hanging out with, spending time with. Tax collectors, now these are, some of you maybe work at IRS. I don't know. I know a lot of people, I know a lot of people who work at the IRS, right? This is not what they're talking about here, right? Tax collectors in that day, they practiced extortion, violence, shakedown. They ripped people off, exploited people in order to become wealthy because the Romans had sold them the franchise of collecting taxes. Whatever they collected above and beyond, they got to keep. They were the most unscrupulous mobsters of their day. Some of the sinners that Jesus hung around with were prostitutes. In other words, these are not people that you're likely to see in a typical church every Sunday. It's not surprising that the religious people of the day thought of them as scum. Now, was Jesus condoning their lifestyle choices? No, he never said that sin was okay with God. He never said that sin was okay with him. And yet there he was having dinner with them. And dinner, eating together in social fellowship was a powerful symbol, a statement in that society of welcome and acceptance. He was having dinner with them, and the Pharisees were so scandalized by that because Jesus welcomed these people into relationship that 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 affected Jesus' reputation. So here's the question I would ask that, that I would ask you to think about it from that time and think about it in our culture today. Who were the non-religious people at that time attracted to? It's pretty obvious they weren't attracted to the most religious. They weren't attracted to the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were. You can see it in the words that they spoke to Jesus. They were hateful and intolerant and bigoted. Judgmental. And some of the same things that people are saying about Christians today characterize the Pharisees back then. Who would people in our day be most comfortable around or most attracted to? Now here's, let's look at the rest of the verse. When Jesus heard this criticism, he, he responded to it. He said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. And then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices, for I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are, are sinners. So go back to that that verse for one second. There's, in response, as he explained his purpose, he's, he wasn't just there for the party. 
He was there with those people for a purpose. His purpose was to call them to know God. And he didn't just say, hey, anything goes. He recognized that they needed God, and he wanted to call them to God. That's why he hung out with them and and spent that time with them. But I want you to notice he gives one command to his followers in light of this whole encounter. One thing he says, he says, I want you to show mercy. Quotes the Old Testament. And he says, go and figure out what that means. Go and think about that. Go think about the implications of that. What would that look like in your life if you learned how to go and show mercy? To show mercy unlike these other religious people that you've encountered today. To go and show mercy just like you've seen me do, Jesus says. To go and show mercy like you've seen my father do. To go and show mercy. Learn what that means like the incredible mercy that you have received from God in your own life. Not just to people who are like you, not just to people who share your values and your views, but even to people who don't follow God. Now, when Christianity was fairly new, there was a Roman emperor named Julian. Julian tried to stop the growing influence of Christianity in the Roman Empire because he wanted Rome to worship the ancient gods that, that he felt like were the ones that had made Rome great. So he wanted everyone to worship this ancient pantheon of God. So he wrote against, he was an educated, erudite emperor. He wrote against Christianity. He wrote a, uh, like a diatribe against called um, Against the Galileans. That's what he called Christians at the time. And he called them godless Galileans because they, Christians did not acknowledge the, God that, the gods that he thought were real. And Christians did not have a visible God that they made any statues of. So to the Romans, they looked godless. So Julian, speaking against Christianity, he did say this. He said, Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. The godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. See, he didn't like Christianity. He wanted Christianity to go away. But he grudgingly had to admit that Christians treated others in society with grace. Even people who didn't believe the way they believed. He says these Christians, they don't just help their own poor. They help our poor too. And he says when people come to us, the pagans, looking for help, we don't have anything for them. But these Christians do. And then a contemporary of Julian, who was a pastor at that same generation... A pastor named John Chrysostom, he wrote this. He said, every day the church here feeds 3,000 people. Besides this, the church daily helps provide food and clothes for prisoners, the hospitalized, pilgrims, cripples, churchmen, and others. When epidemics broke out in Carthage and in Alexandria, Christians rushed to aid all in need. So what was the early church known for? Now certainly they held to their convictions with incredible courage because many of them had faced martyrdom. In just the early part of that very same generation when Julian arose, the church had just gotten through the worst persecution that had ever faced under the emperor Diocletian. And now it's just a half a generation later that Julian arose. Those other Christians were known for holding on to their convictions with tremendous courage, but at the same time, they also treated the people around them with incredible compassion. 
They reflected grace in what they said and what they did and, and in how they said it, how they did it. And when we do that in our culture, in our society, when we who have received such abundant grace pour out grace to the people around us, then we show that we are true children of our gracious Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your mercy poured out on us. Help us to learn what that means. Help us to learn what it means to show mercy, the mercy that we've received. Father, fill us up with such a deep appreciation of your grace to us that it has to overflow. That is, people who, God, we were such sinners and, and, and our lives were, were nothing before, nothing to please you, and yet you accepted us and loved us, and how can we then look at other people and condemn them? We're not so different ourselves. Father, we want to be people that are known for grace, that our rep- reputation is grace, that, yeah, we can hold our convictions with, with firmness, but we want people to know us for our grace because we want people to know you and know what kind of God you are, and to know your heart toward them. So God, we help us to evaluate our speech, gracious and attractive and hopeful and gentle and um, respectful, and help us to evaluate our hearts, that we have the same heart toward people that you do, toward people who don't know you, the same heart that you do, your generosity to give sunshine and rain and food and all the rest. And We'd have that same heart, the same heart of Jesus, to be purposeful about reaching out and connecting with people who are far from you because we love them, because we have your love for them in our hearts. you got to do that in us, God. On our own, we're going to be defensive. We're going to fight back. We're going to just love our own people. God, on our own, without your Holy Spirit transforming work, God, we're, we're not going to be very gracious in a world where we feel threatened and, and where things are changing so much. So God, work in us, we pray, that we would truly reflect you as our Father. We pray in Jesus' name for his honor and glory. Amen.